0: Hello, everybody. Before we jump into the episode today, um, I just wanted to share a couple things. First of all, if you are interested in the book that we'll be talking about today, People of the Screen, written by John Dyer, well, John was kind enough to give one copy to one of our listeners and so how do you get that well we can't just give it to anybody you got to enter into a draw for it details at the end of this episode another thing just wanted to share that joel couldn't make it to the first half he had some legal meeting complications i don't know it's complicated but he only joins halfway through but it kind of feels like he was there the whole time but that's kind of why he doesn't say very much in the first 30 minutes anyways hope you enjoy this episode thinking about How do we engage with scripture? If we read scripture on our phones, what is that doing to us when we scroll past words or we don't engage it properly? John did some research on this and the findings are fascinating. He found that people do not engage on their phones and understand scripture in the same way that they do with the printed Bible on paper. If in fact, the God of the screen might seem less judgmental, but more confusing than the God of a written text. So listen more to how John did this analysis, what he has to say. is a great conversation. Welcome to WWJT. Today we have a very special guest, uh, John Dyer. He combines theology and technology unlike any other. Uh, not only is he a programmer working in computers, making websites, but he's also an assistant professor and dean of enrollment and distant education at Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, there are few authors as loved, I think, as John Dyer is in the faith and technology space. Part of that because he has been writing in it for so long. Um, you know, just recently coming out with with a uh, with a revamp of your from the Garden to the City book, um, and we're here today to talk about another book that you published in the last year um, on uh, people of the screen. So, thank you so much, John, for coming on the pod.
1: Man, that's a it's an honor to be here. So that was a very kind introduction.
0: <laughs> well, you were very kind. Um, you, I've, have, I've, have, I'm new to this faith tech, faith mm-hmm. and technology world um, a little bit. Trying to be a little bit more online. I like the in person ministry, but it's like, oh, get more online and. And I think you model a collaborative nature mm-hmm. of just mm-hmm. wanting to support other um, thinkers and things like that. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate mm-hmm. you coming on. Um, if you're new here listening to what would Jesus tech, we're just trying to encourage listeners to use tech as Jesus might, if you were to live today, mm-hmm. uh, which is always a fun thought. Um, Joel Jacob is my co-host. I am Andrew Noble. He and I, we met at the university of Waterloo, which is known for its entrepreneurship. A lot mm-hmm. of people ask each other when you're on campus students do of, uh, you know, what side project are you working on? Okay. Mm. Um, and John, you you worked on a lot of side projects. Which side yeah. project was your favorite that that you've kind of worked on of of the various websites?
1: Um, I think that, well, so there's one that I'm still doing right now, which is um, I started about probably 15 years ago, which was y'all version. So that's the one that where we're taking all the places in the Hebrew and Greek where there's a second person plural. So Sorry, a little technical here, but um, where there's a different distinction between you singular and you plural. And in English right now, we just have you for all of those. And so I developed a little code that would change that where where those uh, texts are, but I'm actually kind of doing it in a more manual way right now. So I'm taking it from a tech project to a full on translation project. And so I'm hoping that that really long-term impacts people in a deep way to say they can see who God is and who God's people are in a a way that pure technology couldn't just do.
0: Hmm. And what's an example of one verse that we might misunderstand if we think about it just in you in singular? Because we hear you and we're like, oh, that's just talking to me as an individual. But a lot of times the Bible's talking to a group of yous
1: yeah yeah i'll give just two quick examples you know in in genesis when the serpent comes and talks with eve he initially says did god really tell y'all and so there's an immediate reference to Adam sort of early in the text before you say, you know, Adam who was with her a little bit later. So that, you know, highlights something gives you a different visual picture. And then there's things like say Jeremiah 29:11, you know, one of those favorite verses. I know the plans I have for mm-hmm. you. It says I know the plans I have for y'all. And so that that really changes the character of that that this isn't just all about me. Now, I think God does care about each of us individually, but this puts us more in a corporate sense. And then we could go through a lot of the New Testament passages that, you know, about the temple of God and the temple of the spirit, all these kinds of things are often referencing a larger group than just individuals.
0: Hmm. Very cool. Very cool. I've always enjoyed bestcommentaries.com, commentaries.com uh, yeah. going through seminary myself. Um, yeah. Do you feel a little bit bad that you put publishers out of the revenue possibility of some of those old reference books? Like mm. you used to buy a literal Book that would be very thick and it would be here are all the recommendations for different commentaries you basically turn that into an online rotten tomatoes type of, of yeah. website um yeah. is there any guilt that you have for yeah for well there's, there's a lot in layers that, of layers of that mean?
1: it's a great question because um like, like you said, there, there are several people who have published fantastic works like Jumper Longman and D.A. Carson, um, John Glenn. And those are very detailed works that have a lot of additional information in them that Best Commentaries doesn't have, you know? And so there's, I think like a lot of things that are online, There's a they're a great starting place. Like Wikipedia is a great place to start learning about something and you wanna to go to those deeper resources. So in that sense, I think there's still a lot of value in a website like Best Commentaries that helps people know where to start and then how to go deeper. I think the larger question uh, that, I, that I've spent more time thinking about is is the the bias and the algorithm. So, in this sense, I, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm taking a bunch of different um, reviews out there and trying to give them a star rating, convert them into something that can be aggregated up. Well, whenever I'm doing that, you know, I'm converting deep thought into just a number, and then I'm averaging it out in some way. And these these things tend to be um, Sort of not self-corrective, but but they move in a in a particular direction. Where once D. A. Carson recommends it, then the other lists recommend it, and so they perpetuate this this rating. And you know, there's a certain type of religious person that wants a list. You know, that wants to be told what's right and wrong, and so it's biased in that direction. Um, a lot of the scholarship, or a biblical scholarship, you know, through the 20th century was probably dominant in a, mostly men, um, mostly you know European, North American, and so. So that bias keeps getting built into the algorithm and keeps getting reinforced. And so I've been trying to think of ways to uh, kind of uh, decouple that a little bit and and rethink, are there ways to highlight new and interesting authors and ways that don't just do that for the sake of doing that, but do that in a way that pushes against the data bias? So there's a lot built in there that these things are never just neutral. They're never just it's never just data, you know. And and if if you're listening, I'm doing finger air quotes here and saying just data. It's never just data. Mm-hmm. That um the way we present the data, the way we process it always matters. So there's a lot of big questions, yeah, even just in that one website bestcommentaries.com.
0: Mhm. Yeah, it's you have to be thoughtful if you're working in tech or if you're using tech that the data isn't neutral. Um, this has been something that I've 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 tried to learn as I've read books. I like started, you know, a year ago, what are some foundational reference guides for understanding technology? You got Kranzberg's Laws of Technology. I saw that referenced in a few different places, you know, his first law. And I'm like, this is this will be good. This is this seems like everybody's quoting it. You know, technology is neither good nor is it bad, nor is it neutral. And I'm like, Ooh, that's, it's just catchy. It makes you think Mm. it's not neutral is a big thing that you just said. Mm -hmm. Um, But I tweeted that, or I tweeted something in relation to it. And then you commented on it and we didn't start a Twitter war. It was very (laughs) Um, funny, but I'm curious, what's your, what's maybe your, your agreement or slight disagreement with that statement Mm -hmm. of technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So when I, a lot of times when I'm talking to an audience or even a classroom, I'll ask them this question, is technology good, bad, or neutral? And what I find is that, you know, 5% will say good, 5 will say bad, and 90% will say neutral. And then I will say, hey, my, my job here today is to unconvince you of that and to convince you that technology, the nature of technology is good, but it's never neutral. So that's, that's usually the phrasing I use. What I mean by that is I, I'm not saying like every single technology in the world is, is perfect and it's good or something like that. I'm just coming on the nature of technology. What I want to do is to look at the technological world that we have through sort of a biblical theological lens. But to do that, you have to go back and look at the biblical theological story through sort of a technological lens. Be looking at all the places where human making and creativity show up and, and what does God seem to be saying in those stories. And so when I look at just starting in Genesis 1 and 2 about humans are called to have dominion over creation, to um, to fill and multiply, that certainly that's having babies, but I think that's also the things that we make. So God tells Adam to care and cultivate for the garden, that, that cultivation is the word we get culture from. It's often a tool making and tool using thing. Um, so Adam creates language in the garden, and then immediately when Adam and Eve um, are, are sinned, they immediately make things. And all throughout the biblical story, there's these places where God incorporates creativity from Noah's Ark and the Tower of Babel to all the things that happen with the Israelites to Jesus himself being a carpenter who dies on a thing of wood and nails, Mm. that it seems like God is continually reinforcing that I care about your souls, I care about your bodies, but I care about the things that you make. And then we end this story not with going back to the garden, but uh, with a city from heaven coming down. So that's the sense in which I mean that technology is deeply part of what it means to be human. And when God looks at creation, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And he looks at humanity and says, it's very good. I think that our creativity is part of what that goodness is, that to be in God's image is to be creators and makers. And there's all kinds of fun language, like, are we sub-creators? Are we creators? All that stuff. Mm. But I think that this, this nature of, of making is, is theologically good. Now, practically speaking, this is where we get into the thing that whatever we make is never neutral, and it, never has, it never has no effect on us as we use it. And so I want to hold those two things in tension. Let's uphold the theological goodness of our creativity. Let's also say, this is never neutral. So let's think carefully about not just what we make, but the implications of the things that we make.
0: And an example of a technology is the Bible itself, which Mm -hmm. you kind of dissected, you got into this. So this was, I guess, a PhD project for you or for your dissertation. Mm -hmm. um, And you took a sociological perspective rather than a purely theological one, even though you could have probably gone in either direction yeah. um it sounds like when you presented it one of the questions when you presented it was why didn't you go more theological with this and I'm I'm curious just in the in the beginnings of of the project what made you think I want to think about digital Bibles and yeah. their their impact what made you go in that direction
1: oh that's a good well so so for me you know I think as a programmer myself so i am am a I'm a a Christian and a programmer. and these two these two identities um, circle each other. And I think everybody who's ever been a programmer, and has a faith thinks like man i wonder if i could make bible software i just think that's a the question we all ask and I wonder if i could make something cool with the bible because you know once once the bible got verses so that technology was added in the 1500s um it kind of got got turned into a database and we think man I, I bet i could do something with that so i've played around with you know bible technology for a while so one of my little side projects in seminary is this little website called uh, biblewebapp.com and so it you know does a has a little interface for you know being on See Greek and Hebrew and stuff like that, and I still kind of like using it, and not not just because I made it, but I made it the way I wanted it. So underneath the hood, I'm I'm wondering. So as we move into this era of using screens a lot you know, how does that affect what people conceive of the Bible? How do they, um, how do they read it differently and how do they even conceive of what it is differently? So for example, with the print Bible, you know, that if you open it up to the very middle, you're going to get to the Psalms. And if you go to the right a little bit, those are the spicy books, you know, we all kind (laughs) of know that about the physicality of the Bible, but you know, when you, when you're scrolling through a list of books that, that size uh, and and that order isn't necessarily as apparent. So there's little subtle things like that, that change. Mm. And yet, I also don't want to always be comparing things to print, because as if that were the default. Because, you know, from the time of Moses, we think maybe was somewhere around fifteen hundred BC to somewhere around fifteen hundred AD, people didn't have their own copy of the Bible. The, the their only access to scripture was hearing it in in a synagogue or in a church.
0: That's so we went the from the Lord, right? That was, yeah, that was yeah. Their so approach. three,
1: yeah, three thousand years of audio to a couple hundred years of print to now this era of print and digital. Um, so we want to think about what is the effect of, of those shifts. We would say God's word never changes. And yet the mediums through which we access it do change what we see and what we don't see and what we hear and what we don't hear. So that's really what I was interested in is, is what's going on in this new age and how can I, um, how can I? How can I actually observe this from from the from the programmer's perspective? What do they think they're trying to do? And then from the user's perspective, what really happens? I know what I think, or what I speculate, or what my own anecdotes are, but can I produce some data that would help us see things that we can't see without uh, large trends?
0: Mm-hmm. And I and I love the history that you've given it. Can you help listeners understand what text did Jesus read from? What was the technology that Jesus used?
1: Yeah, I mean, you get that uh, little passage. I think it's Luke four, Luke six. I think where it says, you know, Jesus came into the synagogue, and he the the scroll was open to Isaiah, and he opens it up, and then he reads from it, and then he says, in in this hearing, um, this has been fulfilled, you know. And and then he has a, a little conversation with his um, the people from his hometown there. But but there, you know, it's it's this word for a roll or a scroll at that time, and you know, all throughout the Bible, this term Biblos, at least in Greek, usually is sometimes. it's translated as scroll sometimes as book depending on on where it is and what the what the context is and what would make sense but yeah and that day everything that was considered to be important was on a scroll now um by jesus's time you know various forms of paper and parchment were around people were using them to create you know shopping lists and to write letters to each other. but if something was was significant it was still put on a scroll. so that's what he would have used and what he would have uh, referred to so even when he talks about you know the law and the prophets and the writings, you know there's sort of these groupings of scrolls but there isn't an an Old Testament or a Hebrew Bible in the way we would talk about it now it's just these collections of scrolls that would be uh, put together
0: mm-hmm and then the early church, you would think that they would maintain the tradition of only using scrolls, mm-hmm. but they don't. Yeah, they
1: don't. So, I mean, one thing is, you know, I mentioned earlier lists and letters. It makes a lot of sense that, you know, when Paul is going to write a letter that he would use parchment because, you know, he just needs a, a several sheets of it and he can send that out and it can be copied and sent to other other places and they can uh, u- reuse the letters, but but you know with some things like the gospels there's this question of why would they why would they keep this on on paper um, instead of using scrolls and there's a lot of theories a lot of speculation no one really knows exactly but a couple of the reasons why people think this happened one is just the the ease of use of being able to uh, travel and transport with these things that they're a lot easier than giant scrolls they also have this new feature where you can have um, random access to different things you don't have to scroll all the way to the end to get to the document that you can just flip the pages, which is this powerful new thing with a, with a codex. Um, some of the other thoughts were that this was a, a canon question. So what I mean by that is that when uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for example, are written, there's a bunch of other, uh, there's some other gospels being written in the second century and stories about Jesus, like the gospel of Peter that are are non-canonical, not inspired by the spirit. But there were questions about which ones were and which ones weren't. Now, if you took Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and tried to put them all in one scroll to say, this is the official thing, you couldn't fit it, but you could fit them all in a codex. Same with the letters of Paul. They wouldn't all fit on a scroll, but you could put them, uh, could stack them all together and turn them into a book, or what I'm using the word codex for, since that's kind of a hand bound book. So there's some thought that that was what would would signify these are the official things before some of the the councils that would all uh, agree on those things came about. And so we, you know, the 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 thought that Christians are the people of the book or the people of the codex comes about, and that's really something that we think that somewhat originates with um, Islamic culture. So that was something that Muhammad would say that he would watch them and say, "Well, these other religions use still are using scrolls, but the Christians are the people of the book."
0: Huh? Huh? That's fascinating. Yeah. Super helpful to to think through that. Um, and and you think about Christians today uh, again kind of, Putting on the hat of a sociologist, and you're like, they're using not the codex, not the scroll, but they're using the NAB version. So, yeah. this is a different version of the Bible, yeah. and I had yeah. to look it in. But then I was like, I was reading your book, and I was convinced that most Christians really do, I'd say 95% or more. I know I do. We use the NAB yeah. version. So, right. what is this? What is this version of the Bible that we're uh, using? That's a great, we're using? <laughs>
1: well done on the setup there. So, you know, I part of the research was going to a couple of different churches and asking asking uh, congregants, you know, how they use a variety of different mediums. So if they want to do devotional reading or long form reading or prayer reading or, um, or study or search or audio, what technology do they use? Do they use print? Do they use their phone? Do they use their computer? And so they would mark all these different things if they prefer one medium over the other for different activities. But then when I ask them, you know, when you're running out the door, what do you do? Do you go back and get your printed Bible, even though that's what you want to use in church? And they would say, no, you know, most of the time I just use whatever is most convenient. So if I have my phone, that's what I'm going to use, even if I don't really want to. And so that's what I came up with this term, NAB for nearest available Bible, that we tend to gravitate toward whatever's most convenient for us, even if we think, hey, maybe my devotions would be better if I used print, or maybe search would be better on a desktop, they would say, I'm still going to probably use the thing that's in my pocket, which is which is a phone. So we, we gravitate toward that. And um, again, I'm, I'm not making any critique here, some sort of theological thing of that we shouldn't use our phone. I'm just pointing out about the kinds of behaviors we do and then thinking about what are the implications of those behaviors down the line.
0: Mm-hmm. And you were focused in on evangelicals. So in your approach, I yeah. think you, ch- you said you chose three churches. And then mm-hmm. what was your sample size? Do you think it was large enough or are you worried about that? Yeah. So, you
1: know, the, the the user end of things was about 200 people. So, you know, somewhere around 80 at each of these three churches, somewhere a little bit more, somewhere a little bit less. Uh, two of the churches would become kind of non-denominational. One of them was Southern Baptist. So they're all fitting largely in the same thing. And we can we can make jokes about whether or not um, non-denominational churches are Baptist or not. But anyway, <laughs> so what, when you get to about 200 people, you have enough to where you can um, validate some of the data and and see what the P values are and all this kind of nerdy statistical stuff to see you know, are are you seeing something that uh, is statistically significant? And so some of these things came out that way. Some of them, you would see a trend, but you can't necessarily say it's it's statistically significant in that way, but it still points in a direction that then I can validate with um, oral testimony. So I also recorded them going through a series of interviews. So there's sort of the uh, numerical data and then the interview data and putting those two together gives a more rich uh, portrait of what's going
0: on. Mm-hmm. So, assessing, you know, it's it, you had like pre test in the discussion groups, surveys, all these different modes. And then you also split them into two groups. Yeah. Some had to do a Bible reading plan on a phone, and mm-hmm. some had to do it physically. So, what did you yeah. find in testing that out?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I want to come back to that question of evangelicals in a minute, So, let's pause that for a second. Mm-hmm. But when we come down to thinking about the users themselves. Um, yeah, what I wanted to do was a, a series of tests with them. So one was was a, a bunch of interview questions. One was a, a survey that I handed them about how did they use scripture? And that was what we talked about a little bit before, or how do they use different mediums? So there were were two tests. One of them was a comprehension test. So I had them read the book of Jude, and half the group read on their printed Bible, and half the group read on their phone. And then I also had them go and do a 10-day Bible reading plan through the Gospel of John and report back the results. So they were just randomly put in these groups of, of print or phone and you know that I had them use what they had on hand so I I, you know initially thought maybe I'm going to get a bunch of the same Bible on the same phone but it turns out that there's not enough really data to to support using that And and that would also make mean that they were using something that wasn't familiar with to them so I had them use their own stuff so here are some of the things um you know on the comprehension part of it I would ask them just objective questions they were you know a b or c which one is the answer and then I also had them do some interpretive questions and the history of screen, um, tests, screen versus print reading, you know, in the eighties, when they would do this, people would score way lower on, on their screens, just because, you know, there were those big boxy monitors and as monitors have gotten better and, you know, they've turned into flat screens with iPads, you know, the scores have gotten closer and closer and closer. Um, but there's still mm-hmm. some areas where uh, print readers will score better, particularly when it comes to ordering events in a narrative. Print readers tend to do better, probably because of that tactile nature of sh- of sh- uh, shifting the page. But the scores are becoming closer. So what I, what I did find is is an unexpected result is that that uh, with women they scored about the same um, on print and and phones, but for men they actually scored lower on their phones in terms of comprehension. And there are some data out there that would say that um, even as as young little little kids, little boys and girls, that they tend to approach technology in some different ways, and it's it's never quite clear how much of that is is uh, something that's more biological, and how much of that is is trained so, so uh, in society that the expectations of things like video games and what girls and boys do. Um, There's also, you know, what types of jobs men and women have. And, you know, sometimes in a church context, there are more men who are in full-time work and more women who are at a stage where they might be home more often. So their screen usage may differ based on that. So there's there's some, uh, a lot of other factors going on than just sort of biology men and women doing things differently. There's also some generational things, but I think the, the area that was more interesting to me was on the on the interpretive parts of things. So the comprehension didn't seem too different, but it was on what they felt like the, the text was saying and then how it made them feel. So one question is about, uh, you know, what did you think the book of Jude was about? And the other question was, how did it make you feel? Or what was the the spiritual, uh, they call it affective reading? What What happened to you as a result? And so this is where the things diverge in a pretty significant way to me. So the print readers would say, I think that the book of Jude is about God's judgment. And the phone readers, though, they tended to say that this is about God's faithfulness. So I thought, man, that's really interesting that they seem yeah. to see different things. You know, one, 100 people are saying one thing, 100 people are saying the other thing, you know, in, in averages, they're saying it and more in that direction. And then when you contrast this, though, with the other question of how did it make you feel, The print readers were more likely to say that they felt encouraged by reading this. And the phone readers were more likely to say that they felt discouraged or confused by reading it and that they wanted to read it again because they didn't understand it. I thought, man, that that is absolutely fascinating that um, God of print would be someone who is judgmental, but makes you feel good and encouraged. And (laughs) God of screen is faithful, but he makes you feel discouraged. And you're going, so what is happening there? So I'll pause there and we can, we can keep talking about what that might mean.
0: Well, no, when I was reading through it, so I've, I just started because I've been trying to keep up with my own reading plan habits, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm an evangelical and we'll get back to that. So I want (laughs) to intake the Bible. I value it. Bebbington's quadrilateral. I care about the Bible. Okay. Let me get it in. I'm going to go through Isaiah, you know, and sometimes Isaiah in the first 40 chapters, especially you're like, is this repeating what I read yesterday? Mm -hmm. Or is this different, you know, and. You're going through, and I would highlight verses because I'm friends with like five people on you version. Mm-hmm. And I would highlight the verses that were positive, only mm. the ones that were positive. Yeah. Yeah. And I found myself doing this because I know some of my other friends, there might not be into the Bible as much, but if they saw those positive things stated in Isaiah, there's lots of judgment in Isaiah, but I found yeah. myself only stating the positives mm. um, and highlighting those to share those. Mm. Not that there'd be any wrong with, but I'm like, well, you can't interpret the judgment as easily, but a positive verse. Mm-hmm. So I just found myself doing that. And then I read your book or I listen to your book, because I listen to it on audio, yeah. which is just a whole thing in itself. <laughs> That's another other form of, of yeah. intake. And I, and I was like, oh my goodness, on screens, and and you talk about this in the book. On screens, we're more likely to share things, read things that are shared. And we tend to lean towards the positive things. And so maybe that's impacting the judgmental God versus not or or whatever in, in text, more judgmental, but on screens, oh, that's probably more of a positive God. Mm-hmm. Is that does that resonate with what you're kind of thinking as yeah, one, so- one theory, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And so I think that, um, you know, the, the, the data is saying one thing and then now we've got to interpret that data. And so this right. is where the the role of more kind of sociology as an interpretation comes in. I was glad to have the data. My my suspicion is this, is that um, the way we feel about a printed Bible and the way we feel about our phones is affecting this interpretation. So, you know, when I ask people about, you know, how they felt about these different things, sometimes people would, you know, hold up their Bible and they would say, this, this thing is what I trust. And they—they're not actually saying that they trust in the physical Bible, but that it—it has a representation, uh, representative quality to them. Sometimes sociologists would call this that the Bible has an, an an iconic value, that it serves as an icon in some way, even for you know. Uh, religious traditions that don't really think of themselves as having icons or having things in a, in a church service or the, not particularly liturgical, that this object still has power. And you can see this if you just walked into a coffee shop like a Starbucks with a printed Bible. People are going to treat you really differently than if you just have a tablet and you're reading the same exact text, that it, it means the audience around. So the printed Bible means something to people. Our phones also mean something to us. So, you know, right now you're probably more afraid to lose your phone than you are to lose your keys, you know, to your car or something like that or to your house. But you're also, you know, when you think about it, it probably holds a lot of like guilt and shame and anxiety and all these different things are wrapped up in that. So we think, man, I spent too much time on my phone or whenever I go on it, I see you know, something that is either anxiety producing, like some terrible news out there in the world, or maybe it's something that, you know, I have that, that feeling that everybody
0: else is having more fun than me on social media. Yeah. Or, or shame. You know, Cause you commit uh, sins by what you look at or you're exactly. Yeah. D- so, all d- sorts sins. of experiences yeah. and
1: then, on the other hand, too, our our experience of scripture on screen, what you mentioned is that, you know, if you were to just go on Instagram or wherever, most of the verses that people are going to share tend to be more in that positive direction. they're going to they're going to focus on God's faithfulness, on his care for us, on the peace that He wants to bring. They're not usually going to talk a lot about judgment. And there's some great research from Pete Phillips about most of the verses tend to shift in what he would the MTD direction or moralistic therapeutic deism. That you know, there was a time where a verse like John 3, 16 that's more theological, would would tend to be the kinds of things that people would share. That's not really judgment, but it has some some depth to it. Whereas now the verses tend to be something like maybe Philippians uh four, eight, you know, that that I can do all things through him who strengthens me, that that is it's really about uh, you know, giving, but we've reappropriated it to sports and all these other kinds of, <laughs> of contexts, that he's showing a shift over the last maybe 15 years and that type of what we share. So I think what that does is that when I pick up my phone Bible, even though um it's it's great, it's the same text, it's the eternal word of God that's authoritative 100%. and has all the power to have the spirit work through it in me at the same time I bring all those things to it that that what I see on screen tends to be more positive about God and I'm also bring a lot of anxiety to that at the same time um that's again not me saying don't use this it's saying be aware of what this means for me and in th- the same with with print what does this mean to me when I use that so th- those are my my suspicion is that that difference is about the mediums and about what we bring to those mediums before we even encounter the text itself
0: hmm Hmm. Yeah, thinking about it as as icons and just the impact that we have associated with those those different technologies, it makes a lot of sense. Like, I think that's the reason why some people prefer Kindle as a uh, a way of you know accessing scripture or accessing reading because there's no distractions. You know, that's the that's the key part of it. And yeah, with a phone, you might be reading scripture and then you might get more distracted or you might get. I know I'm more prone to to scroll and I know you 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 found this in your research too that a lot of people are like me they on a phone they're more likely to skim read rather than get through mm. each each word and that's that's a that's an issue um yeah. but the tech of a phone can Add tons of value like your Bible web app website does. And um, I I found it super fascinating at the one section you talk about the perspicuity of scripture, mm. and I'm a reformed guy, so I'm like, I, I remember <laughs> learning that and being like, Oh, isn't it amazing that we don't have to rely on the Pope or mm. the priest or the church to interpret scripture for us? We believe in the perspicuity of scripture, we believe that that as soon as you have the Bible. Um, read to you or you read it yourself, it's it's easy enough to understand the essentials of mm-hmm. salvation and godliness. Um, and so like, I believe in the perspicuity of scripture, this is important, but there's something new that's happening with technology today that there's so many other ways to easily interpret. Um, it's kind of changing the way we find scripture easy to understand because there's study mm-hmm. notes right there. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about your findings in this area.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, for readers or listeners who aren't familiar, perspicuity is a big fancy obtuse academic word that means the opposite of that. So, perspicuity just <laughs> Exactly. clear and understandable. And uh so when it comes to scripture, the reformers would have said that uh scripture at least the, the main important things about who God is and about salvation that they're basically understandable by most of us. So when we read Ephesians 2, 8, 9 it says for by it's for it's by grace that you've been saved. That that means that um that it's by faith and not by works that we can just kind of take that at face value or that or ironically that you know when it says Jesus had uh, brothers and sisters that he had brothers and sisters that that's just what that means now now peter himself will say that some scripture especially pauline scripture is hard to understand so it doesn't mean that everything's easy to understand just that the main things that the spirit can reveal to someone without the need for an uh, an official church dogma that comes through the magisterium or something like that so obviously, this is it in contrast to the Roman Catholic idea that, that we need an official church interpretation. So when it comes to this era of digital Bibles, um, you know, as I would interview people and I'd ask them, what do they love about digital Bibles? It's the stuff that you and I love, like that you can tap on a word and you you get a definition, or that you can, you know, tap on something and get more resources and it points you to commentaries and all this stuff. But what I've started to see a pattern in in multiple people is that they would say, You know, the reason why I like the digital Bible is I can get to the answer. And as long as I have the app and as long as I have the right resources, then I can get to the answer. Now, that's a little bit different than what the reformers were saying. They were saying that scripture Mm -hmm. itself can speak to us. But these people seem to seem to be saying that if I downloaded the right content, if I bought the right app, if I added the right uh, uh, thing into that app, then I could get to the answer. And sometimes this was just about, you know, that that discussion that you might have in a small group Bible study where someone would say, I think the Bible says somewhere something like, and and that that being able to search would get you there and kind of confirm that. But other times it was about like, if I tap, I can go deeper and deeper and deeper, and I can find the really true deep learning no- knowledge. And those of us who have studied Greek and Hebrew know that sometimes that just brings up more questions. It doesn't always yeah. make things better. There's no, there's no magic Greek or Hebrew answer. That, uh, that's behind all of these things. And so I call this secondary perspicuity. It comes from a term that Walter Ong created called for secondary orality, where he was saying that there's a kind of speech that we have that's dependent on print. And so this is a kind of perspicuity that's dependent on all of these other apps. Now I should mention, this is not just unique to digital Bibles, since going all the way back to the 1500s with something like the Geneva Bible, we've long been adding notes around the text Interpretive study guides, you know, references to other passages. This has been a, a thing that both Catholics and Protestants do. They add these little interpretive guides to the to the text to say, "Here's how you should understand it." But I do think that when you're on an app and you're, it feels a little bit more serendipitous because I'm I'm clicking and I'm discovering and I'm moving around. That feels different than just the static stuff that's around the text, and maybe gives a little bit different feeling that I'm I'm going on this journey of discovery. As long as I have uh, these tools that help me. Do that then I can get to the answer.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I was in a conversation with our other um, staff, a few other staff, a small group of us at the church, and and one guy was like, "Oh, well, we'd have to kind of look to the Greek to know the answer to this." And it was like, "Do we, you know, like is it is it actually necessary for us to do that?" But when we so when we we're so used to that immediate access to mm. such answers, um, sometimes we we neglect, you know, the the, the value that scripture has for the common person. Like, even Augustine wrote about this at the very end of his Confessions, um, the famous book that he wrote. Once you make it through the difficult parts at the end, he does talk <laughs> about at scripture at the very end. And he talks about, like, you know, sometimes it's going to be interpreted different from one to another, but there's a plain reading of it um, mm. that that is just what we need to appreciate. Uh, the mm. plain readings that even different people will have. Um, I, I I think it's changing us. We're not saying phones are negative. In fact, mm. you even referenced for a second there the, the fact that you can look up the answer. I remember growing up in church and there'd be someone who would say, well, the Bible actually says this well, now we can look that up and we can double check and that can add clarity to a Bible study. Um, So it's, it's, there's pros and cons and it's not neutral. And there's so much going on here, Um, trade-offs. And we are just, we're just thinking through that. Um, One thing Joel and I were talking about uh, before this call is what is an evangelical? Um, Mm. And sometimes there's just a confusion about that. Can you add clarity? I know, it's hard to summarize um, because this is a couple sections in your book on what does it mean to be an evangelical. So the longer answer, people will have to get into the book, but how would you define an evangelical?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think that uh, evangelicalism has been this thing over over the last, especially 40, 40 or 50 years, there's been more concerted effort to studying it and trying to figure out what it is. Anytime something gets big enough to where the group is uh, worth studying, then there's going to be all kinds of different factors. And a lot of this in the last sort of fifty years has had to do with American politics. So sometimes you know, we point back to say when Jimmy Carter comes on the scene and says, "I'm born again and and a bunch of you know newspaper people are going, what what in the world does that term mean? and they're they're trying to study it and understand it. This goes back, you know, to the to the Reformation as well, and trying to think of a Protestant as is a word, like what we're against. We're protesting against something, but evangelical is kind of more like what I'm for. That I'm I'm for the gospel, but as this you know morphs and changes, and and we think about you know the era of George Whitfield and in, in the 1700s, it keeps moving and morphing and changing. So. In the, in the 80s, David Bevington came up with this uh, Bevington Quadrilateral that you mentioned before. There's these sort of four things that he felt like characterized evangelicalism. And it was something that these, these four things exist in other places, but put together all four at the same time. He felt like there was this new movement in the 1700s. And then you know, somewhere around the 1950s, there's a neo-evangelicalism where Billy Graham and that crew are trying to say, hey, we want to come up with sort of a, a positive version of what was maybe fundamentalism had some negatives in the early 1900s. Yeah. This was a, a new positive thing. And then when we get to the 80s, it's, it becomes a little bit more politicized. Mm-hmm. So these original things that, that uh, Bebbington are identifying, as I'll, I'll mention the four is conversionism that evangelicals tend to not talk about their church background, what what denomination they come from, but that they had a conversion experience. Um, Biblicism, that they have a, a deep emphasis in the Bible. So lots of people love the Bible, but this is unique to evangelicalism. Um, and then crucicentrism is that they they really emphasize Jesus' work on the cross as being the the primary thing that we should think about with salvation and atonement. And the final one is activism, that they feel like their faith should be should go out into the world in some way, where that's building hospitals or sharing the gospel. So these four things. Um, started to be that the core factors, but this morphs and changes quite a bit over time and which ones get emphasized by whom and when. And so there's debate, there's a big giant debate over is evangelicalism primarily a set of theological things that this group agrees to, Mm -hmm. or is it a set of behaviors? And you can somewhat hear in Bebbington's answer. that it's a little bit of both. It's somewhat a set of beliefs. It's also a set of behaviors. Yeah. And so I'm going to say it's it's always going to be some of both of those things, that there is a unique emphasis on the Bible and conversion. But there's also what I would add to Bebbington is a particular posture toward cultural change that it seems mm. like whenever things are, are uh, shifting, whether that be politically or technologically, that evangelicals have this attitude of both wanting to distance themselves from it, but also wanting to appropriate and use part of it for their mission in the world. And that that posture we see through the missions movement and even in the sort of uh, Bible application process that we're seeing today.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's good clarity because honestly, with the politicization of it, I wouldn't originally have said, oh yeah, I'm very evangelical. But based on that definition, I'm more like, yeah, oh, I'm probably evangelical, which is-
1: <laughs> Yeah. And I think a lot of the labels that we wear today, uh, they always have a, a split meaning and it's hard to know, is it is it worth you know, using this label or not? But when you think about the the beliefs, maybe that we all feel like, yeah, I, I believe those things about evangelicalism. And yet I know that sometimes those, uh, those postures toward cultural change can be overdone in a certain way. So even when it comes to something like the mission, movement, there's a real practicality to that of saying, Hey we all have different denominations but we all care about bringing the gospel. But sometimes that pragmatism got mixed in with colonialism and all kinds of really negative things that were mm. uh, really not what I think we would all believe that the gospel is saying to do. And then I think we see that today in modern politics. This this sort of move to say, man there are some things that we really do feel like would would be oriented toward justice in the world and yet we we uh, sometimes over marry into particular political parties and then adopt their entire ideology. And that isn't super helpful. So some of the best parts of evangelicalism can also be twisted into becoming the worst parts of it as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you speak to this in the book about how it's it's almost like evangelicals quote unquote won the technological wars for Bible mm-hmm. apps because there's just more evangelicals influencing things like U version or things like logos Bible software. And there's there tend it tends towards that. Um, but yeah, that that posture that evangelicals have, um, you called it something. You know, it's it's uh, you got to have a three word thing, I guess. It's it's the way to go um, rather than moralistic therapeutic deism, which kind of describes more broadly um, Christianity in North America. Maybe you you use HEP H E P. Um, so help us understand what that means. Yeah. So this H E
1: P is hopeful entrepreneurial pragmatism. So as as I was beginning this project, I was really more interested in thinking about what are the developers trying to do? What are they trying to get people to do with their apps? What do they want to what do they want to make possible? What do they want to discard and make impossible? So something like Logos is much more study focused. But if you ask the folks at UVersion, they're going, hey, we're not trying to be seminary or study. We just want people to be in scripture. So we're not going to add Greek words and all that kind of stuff to it. So they had these particular emphases. But as I started to interview them, I found, hey, look, almost all of these things from the desktop era to the first early Bible websites to the mobile apps, they all seem to be evangelicals. And so, as I talked with my British advisors, they said, "Hey, you got to spend some time on what evangelicals are," and we just had that discussion to some extent earlier, and then how they uh, uniquely appropriate and use technology. So that's where this thing comes from: is trying to think of what is their approach to technology. So I'll start with the word hopeful. Um, you know, earlier we mentioned this idea: is, is technology good, bad, or neutral? And people who t- tend to emphasize that technology is neutral tend to, you know, in, in philosophy of technology terms, we would call that instrumentalism where we believe that, you know, technology doesn't actually do anything to people, but it's only how people use it. So the popular American phrase that guns don't kill people, people kill people. That's an instrumentalist view that guns are irrelevant. It's just what people do with it. The other side of that would be a view that would say, no, no, technology actually is driving and dominating society. You know, I think somewhere in the middle there is this acknowledgement that technology has a set of values and that people have a set of choices. And so I think that evangelicals tend to lean in that that instrumentalism idea that they say, hey, I'm, I'm aware of bad uses and I'm even aware of some of the formative impact of it. But in general, I have a hopeful attitude toward it. I think it's better to use it than to not use it. So I'd rather not leave it on the floor. I'd rather not say, you know, if I can get the gospel into a country using radio, I'm gonna do it, even though there's a downside to it. So that's that hopeful idea is it's a kind of theologically inflected version of instrumentalism. Well, while it's not entirely naive instrumentalism, it, it yeah. leans in that direction.
0: And like Billy I'm Graham's about... yeah, Billy oh, yeah, Graham's but... quote, just to jump in, you, yeah. you quoted in the book, like most technologies, television in itself is morally neutral. Yeah, so you can yeah. see that in that statement. He. Like, Let's get the gospel out. We care about the gospel. We care about conversion. We care about the Bible. Let's get it out. Use any medium possible because, in his words, television in itself is morally neutral. Yeah,
1: exactly. So, you know, I'm I'm sure if you asked him, he would say, oh yeah, I understand some non-neutral qualities of it, but a statement that strong makes us think like, hey, let's just use it without, and sometimes without thinking. And you can sometimes hear that when some evangelicals will say things like, man, the church is always behind, that we have to get ahead, we have to move fast. So why
0: are you smiling right now?
2: (laughs) Oh my God. You know, that's, that's, that's me. That's what I feel. Right. And I'm like, part of this is, you know, bringing like technologists along and say like, why are we not even contributing mm. to the discussion? Um, and, you know, people in that space that have this like hopeful entrepreneurial like mindset are, we should also have that same perspective towards like, yeah, like working in the church and like doing yeah. that in the church rather than in the secular world.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so again, when I'm, when I'm describing this, I'm trying to to draw some things out that we can then sort of evaluate. I don't necessarily mean this as, good or bad initially, just trying to say, how do we name what's going on here? And so, like you said, there's a real, uh, sometimes there's some gaps that we could be filling that we could be doing. And then I also want to point out the, on the other side of it, that the whole idea of ahead or behind, that's a technology, um, belief, right? That's a, that's the religion of technology saying that there is an ahead and behind and that we are on a race or on a spectrum and that we need to move there. That is assuming the beliefs of technology before we even use anything. Wow. So I just want to point that out, right. And say that ahead or behind, um, Um, that's that you're already playing technology's game if you're using that language and yet uh, i think we also have this idea that the gospel can spring up anywhere that it's the seed that god can grow in all different kinds of places and that when there's a new culture or a new linguist group or a new ethnicity or a new people group that we come that we encounter when to bring the gospel uniquely in there the modern technology culture is kind of one of those cultural groups that we want to bring the gospel into. That's that's me speaking on the theology side and not the sociology side. So I'm, I'm affirming right. that while also wanting to see the other side of it at the same time. So if we go, go to that entrepreneurial word, this one's always a, probably more of a North American Christian, but but somewhat of evangelicals broadly all throughout South America and Africa as well, that because there isn't this link of church and state where in Europe, the, the state was always supporting the church, financially and making things possible like big beautiful cathedrals once you come to north america and as the gospel goes to other areas there isn't that money there and so christians have to be entrepreneurial they have to figure out how do i make a church work in this right. in this area and so that's built into the dna of american religion and in the religion that was exported through the missions movement of the last couple hundred years And so you see it time and time again in all these different practices and how churches uh, were built. So that entrepreneurialism, when it's married with technological entrepreneurialism, then you get something really powerful in the Bible software area. And I'll just real lastly mention that pragmatism idea that we're basically basing it. We're saying, Hey, did it work or not? So we're not necessarily starting from some kind of big theological discourse. We're just saying like, look, the gospel needs to go and we need to figure out what works and we try something. And if it doesn't work, then we try the next thing. And that also comes from the technology culture of saying, you know, fail fast. Let's, let's try something. Let's do, Mm -hmm. you know, scrum or agile or whatever the development framework that we're using is. We want to be able to move fast and break things. All of those ideas Mm -hmm. are built into, I think some of the way that evangelicals are approach technology and specifically the Bible developers do
2: yeah I think Mm -hmm. you know just being in the technology industry I kind of just want to highlight like that hopeful entrepreneurial pragmatism like value set is actually what most if not all I would say like technology founders have even like the non-Christian ones because to start an endeavor you have to believe in it and then you do have to face the music and say hey did that work you know Mm -hmm. let's make an iterative approach So it really is like correlated at least to the industry at large. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that's partly like a self-selecting bias for Christians who go into that industry, who also hold those beliefs.
1: Yeah, I think you're right that that it very much mirrors the overall technology culture. And I think that you know, if we look at all these Bible software applications, I think evangelicals are closer to that than, say, some of the other kind of mainline groups might might be. It's not to say that there's no uh, mainline folks that are doing technology or vice versa. It's just that most of those big companies, most of the most successful Bible software companies, tended to be evangelicals that leaned further in that direction. I think even in the pandemic, you saw this that evangelical churches were more yeah. like to have adopted a set of technology that made the pivot easier, but that more traditional liturgical uh, groups, you know, they just weren't as oriented to change. And so evangelicals, like I said, one of the big things is they're always reacting to cultural change and they're always willing to adapt uh, their their processes and and their own liturgies to do things that make more sense in this culture. Whereas I think most of our mainline or Catholic uh, groups are more likely to say, no, we, we want to stick with this tradition. And you saw that in, in high contrast in 2020.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, yeah. Um, you know, thinking forward about like where technology is going. And mm-hmm. I know there's this kind of like paradigm of like people of the screen, whether mm-hmm. it's like mobile screens or like uh, monitor screens, but then like, you know, coming very soon is this wave of augmented reality or virtual mm-hmm. reality. Which is a screen, but you almost lose um, spatial awareness because you feel immersed. How do you feel like that technology change might uh, affect how we interpret scripture? If you yeah. can actually be, you know, with Jesus on the Sermon of the Mount, with mm-hmm. you know, other people feeling more senses and feeling yeah. more
1: uh, presence. Yeah, those are good. You know, I think one thing I would mention on that that title, the people of the screen. I do think that unlike the move from scrolls to codecs that we talked about before and codecs to printing press, this move with digital, it's not an either or. So we're not going to get rid of books. And we saw that with, you know, all the ebook stuff for a little while. Thought, is Kindle gonna re- replace books? And it turns out that I think people like a mixture of both. They like audiobooks, they like Kindles, they like reading on the phone, they like having printed books. I think we're gonna be in the same spot with, with Bibles, that people are gonna kind of be more in a multimedia environment. In one sense, we're moving forward to screens, and in another sense, audiobooks kind of bring us back to a different era and that we're, we're mixing all these things together. Um, so that's just one thing as we go forward, I think we're going to see a little bit of that too, that there's going to be a a mixture of technology that's used with the Bible. When my experience, you know, with, with VR headsets, you can see one right, right back here on my desk. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: so that's, that's a quest too. And, you know, is that it's, it's really fun. It's really informative. You know, when you go through something like Anne Frank's house, it, it 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 affects you it it, it, it it you you feel the tightness of the space in a way that you can't by reading it it's, it has a very powerful effect on you and yet, you know, you really can only wear that for an hour or so in the current technology. It just doesn't feel that great after a while. And you feel incredibly vulnerable while you have it on. Even though the, the newer ones have cameras out, you're just always afraid that someone's going to come into your office or something like that. And so for now, you know, you're not going to see people wearing VR headsets on a train or, uh, you know, on a plane or something like that. The way that we do with our phones, that we use them constantly because we can use them in line at the store or something like that. Um, VR is just not there yet. Yet, right, it's still going to be these these uh, specific experiences, and it's harder to share with people. Once, once you, As you mentioned, once you get to sort of more of an AR experience where, you know, Google Glasses or something like that, where you have a screen in front of you, I think that that will drastically change social experiences. But like you saw with Google Glass, I mean, there was a very strong social reaction to it, that the iconic value of it, like we talked about the iconic value yeah. of a printed Bible early on, that it it really sends a strong message to people. And I think it's going to take society a long time for that to become normalized. And, and I don't know that it ever w- really fully will, that like today. Like, like we're still saying, hey, let's all put our phones away sometimes. We just want people to do that. I think there will be a place for that as well. But I think it will be just be one more experience that we have alongside things. And to be able to, you know, look up a uh, look up a verse like while someone's talking on the screen would be a, a really interesting experience. Um, but I do think there are some fun ones. Like you said, the Sermon on the Mount, experiencing those could be really neat. I just think they're gonna be more isolated for a for a long while. Yeah. Very That's
0: cool. Couple questions left. Um, this one's—I don't know how you're going to answer this quickly because it's kind of like bringing up all the complexity of our conversation in one question. If Jesus lived today, uh, what technology would he use to read scripture? Do you think? I he think he'd just like codes? us. He'd
1: use a mixture, right? And yeah. so. He'd be using it depending on what the, what the, uh, what the scenario was. So in his context, he opened up what, what was there he opened up the scroll and he read from it. And, uh, but he also wrote on the ground we don't know what he wrote on the ground with. And so, um, maybe he was like writing some code for the, for the next app. I don't know what he was doing in the ground there, but we'll see. And I, I yeah, I think he would be using a, a mix like we are. And yet those statements about it is written that 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 still has significance for us today and that the scripture had significance for him and his audience and i think it would be today with him as well
0: okay mm-hmm. hey, and this question is is purely a selfish one since i have you with me um <laughs> i'm i'm trying to really grow in understanding technology and theology together um so i've appreciated i've i've done a little bit of you know the the Neil Postman. I've done a little bit. I'm like, okay, I got it. I just bought a book from Jacques Ellul. So I know Ellul is quoted a lot. So I got to get into mm-hmm. him. Um, uh-huh. But who should I read? Like, who are the people that um, kind of set the stage for it? Obviously, you're a great thinker on it. Um, appreciate your your books, Garden mm-hmm. in the City. That's like a great mm-hmm. starter pack. Yeah. I'm trying to like mm-hmm. understand how you think even deeper. Yeah. So I'm, what are your resources that you've drawn from?
1: Well, that's great. That's a great question. So yeah, the, the book that I wrote that's called From the Garden to the City is probably more of a theological primer, just an introduction to thinking about the whole biblical story and how God values the things that we make. And it has pointers to some of these other topics that we've talked about. So that's more on the, the theological side. If we come to, you know, you mentioned a couple of thinkers, media ecology is a particular approach to technology, thinking about it as an ecosystem where you know, if you drop a shark into a tank, it's going to change the ecosystem. So when you drop a new technology into our lives, it's going to change the ecology of our lives. So Mm -hmm. Neil Postman, Marshall McLuhan are kind of the thinkers in that area. So philosophy of technology is another approach. So we have thinkers like Heidegger and you mentioned Jacques Ellul. He's coming a little bit from sociology and he has some theological texts like the meaning of the city. And he has also his technological society and a whole approach there. And then Albert Borgman would be another really great thinker to read on more of the philosophy side of things. And then I think then we have the sociology or digital religion side where it's really looking more at the data and saying, what are people doing and how do we interpret that? So for example, Heidi Campbell is just a fantastic scholar in the era. She really carved this space out over the last 20 years. So if you pick up anything from her and then kind of follow her footnotes, you'll find that, that she's really created some wonderful theories for understanding how people are appropriating this cultural change and how different religious groups, including evangelicals, are doing that. And there's a whole slew then of more practical guidance. So Justin Early's The Common Rule, for example, it's just a great book of saying like, here, here are, here are eight practices that can help us counteract some of what technological society is maybe pushing us in an unhelpful direction. So there's some great practical works out there. And then something like Alan Noble's book, The Disruptive Witness, is another just great look at not just the individual technologies like Twitter and phones, but also more technological thinking as a whole and how we're even constructing our own identities. How do I I think about myself as a person in this era? And how do I reorient that toward what would maybe be a little bit more uh, Christian way of thinking about who I am and who my my community is? So those are just a couple of books that come to mind. Um, But there are, just, I think now an increasing set of resources about thinking about specific areas, especially more practical. Whereas some of the stuff I've done is a little more theoretical.
0: I'm just just gonna say thank you so much for your time. I uh, realize we're over the hour now, but uh, super super enjoyable conversation. Love the wisdom. Love the the articulation of how technology is good. It really is good. Like, let's say that with umption, you know, because God made it, wants us to build it. The nature of it is good. Um, and yet it has, it's not neutral and it causes these impacts. And we really should think about that and and consider, you know, whether we're reading with our kids and choosing a phone versus choosing a Bible or we're in a church service or whatever and different contexts for different devices maybe um, and, and thinking through that well. So thanks for for leading the way. Really appreciate or- it.
1: Thanks for having me. And thanks for what you guys are doing to help shape and form the church in helpful ways. Appreciate y'all. Thank
2: thanks, John. Right. Yeah. I wish I could have had more time with you. <laughs> I
1: know. Great, Joel. So um I'm glad you were able to come in and just make it look like you were there the whole time. That was well done, spot on. So good job.
0: We might do a little mini intro to be like, Joel's coming halfway through. Like okay. something. Yeah. Thank you everyone for listening to WWJT. Um, If you are interested in getting a copy of the book we have just discussed, people of the screen by john dyer he was kind enough to give us a link that we're going to share with one of our listeners all you got to do is either go to our twitter page or our youtube page or on instagram one of those three places and simply follow the instructions there you got to follow us on one of those three places subscribe on one of those three places and then you will be entered into after you like the tweet that says like this tweet to uh, get entered into it and comment on that tweet or video, then you will be entered into it. So that's what you have to do in order to be entered into the draw. And someone's going to win a free copy of this book and you'll get to listen to it just like I did. Um, Anyways, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, My name is Andrew and here at WWJT, we are encouraging you to use tech to find rest and to glorify God. Thank you.